Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to today's HR forum on uh, redundancies, lessons learned from the recession. Um, it's good to see plenty of you here today um, from our perspective. Um, perhaps um, indicative, though, of the way people are, are seeing the world or the concerns they've got about, about the world for the next uh, six to 12 months. Um, on one level, not particularly surprising, considering some of the economic news we've, we've seen over the past few days. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the OECD report predicting a double-dip recession for the country. Um, I was reading some of the commentary following the Chancellor's autumn statement, um, which was generally full of good cheer. Some people were predicting six years of little or no growth, um, increase in unemployment, uh, while the papers talked about Britain's lost decade. So um, all full of good cheer before Christmas. Um, what's clear is we are in for um, a bit of a bumpy ride probably over the next um, couple of years. Um, so hopefully today we can uh, help you navigate um, your way through that process. Uh, presenting with me is Catherine Dukes, who's going to talk through um, some of the basics of redundancy, remind us all of some of the basics. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some of the lessons learned so far from, from the recession, some of the things we've picked up. We'll then break for coffee and then we'll have a look at um, a case study to look through some worked examples. So as, as Chris said, I'm just going to run through the, the very basics of uh, redundancy and redundancy procedures. And uh, first is that um, redundancy is a potentially fair reason for dismissal where there's either um, a business or um, a business closure or a closure of the entire workplace, which is the first one up there, first point up there, or where there's a reduced requirement for a particular type of employees, which is the second bullet point. And provided that a fair process is followed, then the, again, you know, that's, uh, there won't be an unfair dismissal. And unless collective consultation applies, then you need to go through an individual consultation process. You may need to pool employees and make a selection from that pool, which I'll go into in more detail. And you need to consider whether there's any suitable alternative employment for employees. So looking at the individual consultation process and the key elements of that, where you are proposing to dismiss uh, less than 20 employees in a 90-day period, <coughs> you need to notify the employees that they're at risk of redundancy. You'd usually um, do that verbally first and then follow that up with an at-risk letter. And then consult them about the, the matters set out in the bullet points here, so the reasons for redundancy, ways of avoiding it, um, pooling and selection and the potential for alternative roles and the redundancy terms to be applied. And I'm going to come on to some of these in more detail. But really the key thing about the individual consultation process, and indeed any consultation process, is that it's intended to be a two-way dialogue. Um, so it's not just an opportunity for you to set out these points, like set out the reasons, but also for the employee to comment on them and to provide any feedback, any suggestions of alternatives and that sort of thing. So where you've got an individual consultation process which involves pooling and selection, what we would normally suggest is that you have the at-risk meeting where you notify someone that they're at risk of redundancy and then you have a further two consultation meetings before you apply the selection criteria and then a further meeting once you've done that to talk through the scoring. So coming on to talk about pooling and selection. Unless the role is a unique role and they're the only person in the organisation who undertakes that role, then generally speaking, 
an employee will need to be pooled with other employees whose roles are or whose duties are broadly interchangeable with theirs in order to make a selection for redundancy. In terms of deciding how big that pool of employees should be, the tribunal gives you a fair amount of discretion. So the tribunal won't substitute its own view of how big that pool should be, which employees should be in that pool. You just have to show that your decision is within the band of reasonable responses that a reasonable employer would take. Um, and as long as you can show you genuinely applied your mind to what the pool should look like and who should be in it, then it's actually quite difficult for an employee or the tribunal to challenge that decision making. When it comes to the selection criteria that you apply to the pool, um, obviously those have to be fair and, obje and uh, as objective as possible, although that's not always as easy as it sounds. Um, and ideally should be based on the employees, or based on the skills and knowledge required for that particular role. And Chris is going to come on to talk about this in a bit more detail in a minute. So that was the individual consultation process. Where you've got, um, where you're making more than 20 employees redundant um, in a 90-day period, then the collective consultation process will apply. And where you're making more than 100 redundancies within 90 days, you have to consult for at least 90 days. If it's between 20 and 99, you have to consult for at least 30 days. So what do we mean by proposing to dismiss as redundant is actually a really, really broad definition. And it basically, um, the case law says that it's any dismissal which doesn't relate to the individual employee concerned. So it's not a disciplinary um, and those sorts of things. Um, so it, that, that wide definition can include, for example, the expiry and non-renewal of a fixed term contract. And also where you're changing an employee's terms and conditions of employment and you have to dismiss them and re-engage them on new terms because they won't consent to the change. And what do we mean by um, at one establishment? So if you're proposing to dismiss 20 or more employees at one establishment, the collective consultation um, obligation arises. That um, generally means that if you have, for example, different sites across the country, you can limit, <coughs> limit it so that if you're just making 20 employees redundant at, at one site, you don't have to count your other sites. Although the courts do also look at sort of organisational um, things like how much control you have over the other sites, um, whether there's sort of man management across all sites. Um, so it, it's a slightly, slightly difficult definition to apply. Um, but, but generally speaking, where you've got one office in Manchester and one office in Birmingham, you can count those as separate establishments. So in terms of consultation, you have to consult with appropriate representatives, um, which will be either the trade union or elected representatives or the employee, any employee representative body that you already have in place. And I'm not going to go into the, the detail of how you elect reps, because that's actually fairly complicated. Um, you should also notify the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills um, using the HR1 form. And then you have to inform the representatives of certain information in writing, which is much the same as for the individual consultation process, except that in addition you need to tell them of the number and description of employees you're proposing to dismiss, the total number of those employees that you employ, um, and things like the calculation of the redundancy, how you're going to calculate the redundancy payments, and also, and this is a new requirement, 
when you're undertaking collective consultation, you have to provide them with details of um, any agency workers that you use, the numbers that you have, how you use them and where you use them. So that's been um, a new requirement that's been brought in by the agency workers' regulations. Penalty for failure to collectively consult is 90 days pay per employee. And the courts have tended to look on this um, as a as penalty, a sanction. So they'll start with the maximum unless there's good reason. And unless there's good reason, you will pay the, the 90 days pay, even where you have only a 30-day consultation period. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind with collective consultation, which employers sometimes forget, is that you do actually need to do individual consultation as well. It's not enough just to do the collective consultation process with the union. You'll need to consult individually about the application of the selection criteria to that particular employee and also any suitable alternative employment for that employee. Now I'm going to hand back to Chris, who's going to take you through some lessons learned from the recession. Thank you, Catherine. Um, over the past few years, um, I mean, I guess we've been in sort of difficult times since, since Lehman Brothers um, collapsed in September 2008, so sort of three years really now of, of challenging times. Um, and in that time, we've seen quite a few rounds of redundancies. Um, what we tended to see is the first rounds of redundancies people were making in 2009, particularly people were cutting corners um, and thinking they could get away with it and getting their fingers burned and getting taken to tribunal um, and doing things slightly more carefully after that. Um, we've also seen people looking at other forms of cost cutting because what a lot of clients are saying to us is actually we don't necessarily need fewer people, we've got work um, that needs doing but we need to reduce our cost base. Um, so based on our experiences and um, based on some of the stuff that's come out of the case law we sort of picked out some, some do's and don'ts um, in terms of lessons from the recession which I put up on the slides I do take account of discrimination requirements um, which are potentially quite complicated and which people can quite easily overlook um, but don't make the mistake of overcompensating to the detriment of other employees. Do make sure you consider all the issues or, um, which as I say particularly in the first rounds of redundancies that people were doing wasn't happening. Um, do make sure you consider alternatives to redundancies um, but remember if you're going to look at other ways of cost cutting you still need to follow an appropriate process if you want to avoid claims. And lastly, and this is a, an issue we've seen with a few clients, don't assume that having financial difficulties automatically provides you with a get out of jail free card. So starting with discrimination first off, um, I, I guess three things which I've, I've picked out. Um, firstly indirect discrimination rules which um, applies where indirect discrimination occurs where an employer applies to an employee an apparently neutral provision criteria and practice PCP that it would apply to other people but which puts those employees um, and those who share that employee's protected characteristic at a particular disadvantage. Um, remember uh, protected characteristic is this term that's now in the Equality Act which brings all the discrimination rules together um, and refers to the uh, protected areas where, where employers can't discriminate so it's sex, race, disability, age, pregnancy, maternity, religion or belief, sexual orientation, gender, reassignment, marriage or civil partnerships, so nine in all, so it's pretty wide ranging. An employer does have a defence if the PCP is objectively justified. Um, secondly, the duty to make reasonable adjustments that um, in disability discrimination, that comes up quite a lot. 
So the duty can arise where there's a PCP which puts a disabled employee at a substantial disadvantage in comparison with those who aren't disabled, and the employer's got to take such steps as are reasonable to avoid the disadvantage. And then lastly, the special rule for employees on maternity leave, which is they have the right of first refusal in relation to suitable alternative employment. In practice, where this comes up most and where we're seeing it coming up most is in relation to uh, selection criteria um, and the selection process. So, for example, some potentially discriminatory criteria might be length of service, that's potentially age discrimination because younger employees are likely to have um, less service. Looking at attendance, um, it's potentially disability discrimination um, because if someone's un, uh, got a poor attendance record because of an illness or disability, that's going to discriminate against them. Um, some employers like to use criteria like commitment, um, which are problematic in themselves uh, in any event because commitment is a bit of a vague um, concept. Um, but even then, it's potentially um, going to be indirect sex discrimination because female employees are more likely um, to have childcare requirements and therefore less likely to be able to, um, to, to remain in the office in the evenings, for example. And even apparently fair, sensible criteria can be discriminatory if they're not applied appropriately. So, for example, if you're looking at performance, Uh, in what sense in terms of would you want to favour full-time employees over? Um, I mean, yes, yeah, but that is potentially going to be a problem unless you've got an objective justification for for, want, for needing full-time employees, yeah. Um, so, yeah, even something like um, performance, if you don't apply it in a fair way, um, that's potentially going to be discriminatory if you don't take account of um, the impact of someone's disability or the fact that someone... Um, has been off on maternity and even needs a bit of time to get back up to speed when they come back in the workplace, that kind of thing. Um, and has been a bit of um, sort of case law of this. And I guess the what comes out of the case law is um, the idea that yeah, you can use um, criteria that may be indirectly discriminatory, but you've got to take a proportionate and balanced approach to doing so. Um, so the case of Rolls Royce and United is a, is a sort of good example of that. It was a slightly unusual case because um, Rolls-Royce had um, selection criteria which it had agreed with the trade union in a collective agreement and it proactively went to court to try and avoid these selection criteria. Um, one of the criteria was length of service and Rolls-Royce said um, we want a declaration that having length of service is one of our selection criteria is indirectly discriminatory on the grounds of age so we don't have to apply it. Um, and it went up to the Court of Appeal um, and the Court of Appeal said actually you probably can use length of service and it probably isn't in this case indirect discrimination because um, it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. The le legitimate aim that the Court of Appeal identified was rewarding loyalty and achieving a stable workforce um, and in terms of proportionality uh, the Court of Appeal looked at the fact that length of service was one of only a number of criteria and so it would have been very different if, it, if the employer was just looking at length of service. Um, and younger workers accepted the policy and accepted that it was a, a fair thing to do, which was further evidence that it was proportionate. In a similar vein, there was the case of Lancaster against TWBA, um, which involved an employee who worked as a, um, a senior arts director um, who had panic and social anxiety disorder 
which I think is what used to be called shyness um, 20 years ago, but maybe I'm being cynical. Um, but apparently he was counted as, um, as disabled uh, under the DDA. Um, there was a pool of three people to decide who was going to be made redundant, including the um, individual who brought the claim. Three of the selection criteria used were communication skills, which were impacted by the individual's disability. He was made redundant and he said um, using selection criteria uh, around communication skills was disability discrimination. He said it would have been a reasonable adjustment to have removed those selection criteria. Um, it went up to the Employment Appeal Tribunal who disagreed and said um, no it wasn't a reasonable adjustment and the reason for that is because actually he would have been made redundant even if those selection criteria hadn't been used because he was the lowest performer on any measure which sounds quite helpful from an employer's perspective. Um, I personally would treat it with a little bit of caution um, for this reason, because effectively what the um, Employment Appeal Tribunal is doing is looking in retrospect and saying it wouldn't have made any difference. But when you're choosing your selection criteria, you can't really do that, um, because you're supposed to go into this with an open mind, not knowing who's going to be made redundant. So you can't say, let's use these discriminatory criteria because we know this person's going to be made redundant in any event. That's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. And I think the better way of approaching this is saying, okay, well, what criteria do we need? Um, what criteria are we looking at? What, what criteria do we need for the jobs that are remaining behind? Um, are any of them potentially indirectly discriminatory? Um, uh, taking that into account, can we justify using them? Are they that important to the job? Um, are we taking a, a balanced approach, looking at other criteria as well? Um, so I guess that's the sort of key theme on the on the discrimination side is um, you know, looking at what you're actually trying to achieve and whether your approach is proportionate. Um, <coughs> and sort of the other side of the coin um, is that um, <coughs> you shouldn't take a disproportionate approach in protecting people um, against discrimination. That's what the Eversheds against the Bellin case um, was concerned with. Um, Eversheds is a, a law firm, um, just around the corner from here in fact, um, which was making redundancies. Um, had a pool of two people, um, DeBell and, and a lady called Reinholtz. Um, one of the selection criteria they were using was something called lockup, which is the time between work being done and the client paying the fees. Um, Mr. DeBellin was given 0.5 points out of a total maximum of two um, in relation to the lockup because the clients he was working with were taking on average 168 days to pay their bills. Um, the lady on maternity leave, Reinholtz, um, was on maternity leave during the assessment period, the preceding 12 months. So to be safe, Eversage thought, let's give her the maximum score so we're not discriminating against her. So they gave her um, two points. And when the final scores were in, as you can see from the slide, he got 27 points, she got 27 and a half points. So he was made redundant. He brought um, unfair dismissal and discrimination claims. Um, Eversheard said, well, look, we had to provide extra protection for the pregnant employee, so that, that's, what, that's what we did. Um, but the Employment Appeal Tribunal upheld the male employee's claims and said, yes, um, someone on maternity leave does need to be treated more favourably to take account of the fact they're out of the workplace, but that tre treatment must be proportionate. Um, and Eversheds could have used a more proportionate alternative. Um, and what they said was they could have looked, up, looked at the lock-up period for the two individuals before the lady went on maternity leave. So again, it's this idea that, that comes through the cases of 
um, if you're looking at discrimination, um, you've got to take a proportionate approach to, to dealing with the issues to ensure you're um, uh, treating employees fairly. Um, the next sort of issue to look at is, is the importance of considering all the issues. Um, and the key word, I guess, in, in that sentence is, is consider. Um, I mean, as Catherine touched upon when she was talking about pooling, employers are actually given quite a lot of discretion when it comes to something like the selection pool provider. They've um, given proper consideration to it. Um, but these two issues, bumping and suitable terms of employment, are, is, is something that um, clients come to us with quite a lot, not quite sure to what extent they should be doing it or considering it. Um, bumping in particular is something that's often overlooked. It's the idea that you should think about making a more junior employee redundant to save a more senior employee, or you should be considering it, or including a more junior employee in the redundancy pool. And the Fulcrum Farm case was looking at exactly this issue. Um, it concerned a redundancy in the HR function. Um, before the restructuring, there were two um, HR employees, an HR manager and an HR executive. And the company decided they didn't need the HR manager anymore, um, but didn't include the HR executive in, um, in the pool. And the HR manager then brought an unfair dismissal claim um, after she was made redundant. Um, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, well, it may or may not have been appropriate to, to include the more junior employee in the pool. They, they noted that the HR manager had previously been the HR executive and covered the HR executive's work was um, the executive as well. But, so actually, that's not really the issue here. The problem is that the company just failed to consider um, the question of bumping and didn't consider the pooling issue properly. Um, and therefore, um, that in itself was enough to make the redundancy unfair. Um, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said that in deciding whether to um, to bump a more junior employee or include them in the pool, you should be looking at the, senior, the similarity between the senior and the junior roles, how different the remuneration structures are, how different the qualification levels are and the expertise are. Um, but the key point is consideration. Um, uh, one question we quite often get asked in this context is, if you're moving the senior employee to the more junior role, do you have to maintain their salary when they move into the more junior role? And the answer is, is no, you don't have to do that. You give them the salary associated with the more junior role, and the EAT acknowledges that in this case. And said, actually, one of the things that uh, Fulcrum Farmer could have done was, early on in the process, consult the HR manager about whether she would have been interested in moving uh, to the more junior package. Well, I mean, the, the primary obligation in, in terms of um, selecting the pool and considering bumping it is on the um, is on the is on the employer. Um, it might be a factor, but if that's the only defence you've got, um, you're not in an ideal position. Is, is how I put it. Um, another issue issue which we tend to get quite a lot of questions on is um, suitable terms of employment. Um, and in how far does an employer have to go in relation to suitable terms of employment? Um, the starting point is if you don't consider alternative, suitable terms of employment, that's likely to make the dismissal unfair. Um, but a, the couple of cases quite helpfully um, demonstrate that um, you don't have to offer um, a role if it's not suitable. Um, and in offering a role, you can rely on subjective judgment to some degree. 
so the first case, Simpson against Endley Insurance, uh, concerned an employee who was on maternity leave. She worked in London for Endley Insurance, one of their retail outlets, most of which were closed. Um, <coughs> they did have a few alternative roles um, in call centres, but they were in Cheltenham and Burnley and um, one up in Scotland. Ensley sent the employee on maternity leave a list of vacancies, but didn't do anything more than that, and she was subsequently made redundant. And she said that was unfair, that she should have been proactively offered one of the roles in, in Cheltenham, in the call centre in Cheltenham. Um, and she was partly relying on the fact that there is this rule that employers on maternity leave get first refusal of suitable alternative employment. Um, but helpfully, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said no, um, this wasn't a suitable role because of the location. There was no evidence she would have um, relocated to Cheltenham. And actually, the question of whether a, a job is suitable is, is to um, a large extent, it's an objective question. It's not a subjective question from the employees, an objective question. And the difference in location was enough to um, conclude this wasn't a suitable role. Um, so sending the job vacancies w was enough from the employer's perspective in this, um, in this case. And then Morgan against the Welsh Rugby Union um, looked at the issue of how do you select someone for an alternative role um, if you've got more than one person competing for that alternative role. Um, and quite helpfully, um, the Employment Appeal Tribunal in that case said um, the standard for selecting someone for an alternative role isn't quite as high as when you're making your initial redundancy selection. Um, you can treat it more like a normal job application process. Um, so in that case, Morgan was one of three candidates for a new role, and he said after he didn't get the role and was made redundant, well actually I was the most qualified and experienced, I should have got the job. Um, the employer said, well we appointed someone else because they performed better in the interview process, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, yeah that's fine, you can rely on subjective judgment um, in appointing someone to an alternative role. So again, it's this, this idea that sort of consideration is, is, the sort of, is the key point. The next thing I wanted to look at is sort of alternatives to redundancy, and it's something we've seen sort of increasingly over the past um, couple of years. As I say, organisations don't necessarily want fewer people, but they do want to cut their cost base. So they're looking at things like asking people for temporarily to work four days a week and for 80% of their salary, asking people to take sabbaticals, um, reducing pension contributions or other benefits, um, or terminating arrangements with non-employees. Um, in relation to that, obviously you need to watch out for long-serving people who are cool contractors but may have become em employees over the course of time. Um, and those are all worthwhile things to think about, um, but the key point is if you want to avoid claims, um, particularly if you're changing terms and conditions, you need to follow an appropriate process. Um, if you're changing terms and conditions, you're going to need to document it, possibly in a side letter, or you might need um, new contracts. And if you're having to impose changes on people, you're probably going to have to dismiss them and rehire them on new terms, which is going to trigger the need to consult them um, individually and potentially collectively. So just touch on um, collective consultation um, first off. As I said, you may need to dismiss and rehire people on new terms if they're not willing to agree to the terms, the new terms themselves. And that potentially is going to uh, trigger the collective consultation obligations if you're dismissing 20 or more employees within a 90-day period of one establishment. Um, as Catherine touched on earlier, the definition of redundancy for these terms is pretty wide. It's any dismissal not connected with the individual worker concerns. So that will 
encompass a situation where you're dismissing someone to put them on new terms. And as Catherine also said, there's a penalty of up to 90 days pay per employee if you don't comply with those obligations. Um, less well known is um, if you're making changes to pension arrangements, which we've seen um, some employers do, um, there's potentially an obligation to consult employee representatives about those, a separate obligation to consult employee representatives about changes to pension arrangements. So for example, if you're changing or if you're reducing pension contributions from the employer or stopping them altogether, that triggers the pension consultation obligations. Um, again, it's consultation with the employee representatives has to last for a minimum of 60 days and it has to be consultation about the changes you're putting in place, the effects of the change, the background um, and the timescale for the change. And if you don't comply with that obligation, there's a fine of up to £50,000, um, which is imposed by the pensions regulator. So it's not claims that individual employees can bring, it's a pensions regulator claim. Um, the pensions regulator isn't the most aggressive regulator in terms of, of imposing fines. He um, says that typically um, he will try and encourage compliance through communication first, um, but I wouldn't rely on that completely. And certainly if you're consulting anyway about, um, about rehiring employees under the collective redundancy obligation uh, consultation, you should be consulting under these obligations as well if they're applicable. And then the second um, sort of side of the fair process is, is individual consultation. Um, if you're dismissing an employee so you can rehire them on new terms, potentially that's going to be an, un, an unfair dismissal um, unless you can justify it on some of the substantial reason grounds. Um, to do that, you're going to need to follow a fair process um, and you're going to need to show that you're only dismissing a small proportion of the workforce. So if you want to dismiss and rehire people and say it's fair for some other substantial reason, you should be in a position where you can say to the tribunal, we've got 100 employees, 95 of them have agreed to this change, it's only these five people that haven't. Um, if you're in a situation where 50 people have objected and you're trying to dismiss them, you should be asking questions about whether you're doing the right thing anyway, but those dismissals are likely to be um, unfair, as I say, unless a majority of people have agreed to the change. But you also need to have followed a fair process, so you need to have consulted with the employees individually about the reasons for your proposal, so if it's um, ceasing pension contributions for a reason, for a period, the reason you're doing that, about alternatives that you've considered, any ideas they've got, um, about ways you can mitigate the effects, and you should give proper consideration to those things, consideration to alternative ways of, of making the cost saving, consideration to ways of mitigating the effects. So for example, a commitment that you'll review in six months time, um, a, an offer of non-cash compensation, such as share options, if that's something you can offer, or again, the idea of if you're, if you're stopping pension contributions, you might say to employees, we'll put in place a salary sacrifice scheme so you can make good uh, pension contributions yourselves and we'll give you the employer's national insurance contribution saving. Um, so things like that will play very well with the tribunal if this gets challenged. Um, and lastly, you should ensure you're um, imposing these changes fairly and across the board um, unless you've got a, a good reason for excluding one particular group. It should be applying to everyone. And in particular, the senior people should be uh, seen to be sharing the pain um, because that, that, that plays well and, and the converse, if they're not, it doesn't play very well at all. And then the last of the sort of the do's and don'ts um, is don't assume that financial difficulties provide a get out of jail free card. 
if you've got a contract if an employer's got a contractual entitlement to something to a certain bonus or a certain term uh, a certain benefit that contractual entitlement still remains even if you're suddenly in pretty dire financial difficulties and the, uh, the trust and confidence obligation which pervades the employment relationship still remains um, in difficult financial times so you still have to exercise discretions and acts um, in a manner which doesn't destroy or, or seriously damage the relationship of trust and confidence that's supposed to exist between an employer and em an employee. Uh, and the case up on the screen is an example of this point, Atrill against Dresdner Klein Ward. Um, the case concerns um, bonuses that were going to be paid to bankers at Dresdner Klein Ward. Um, in August 2008, just before Lehman Brothers happened, uh, the bank says we're putting in place a minimum bonus pool of 400 million euros. Um, the reason they did that was because there was uh, a plan to sell the bank um, and they wanted to ensure that people stuck around to get their bonuses. In September 2008, Lehman Brothers went into liquidation. Um, in December 2008, before the bank had been sold, letters were sent out to employees and at this point the bonus pool was unchanged. Um, the letter set out the bonus awards which it was um, intended that the employees would get um, but the bank reserved the right to review them um, if there were material de deviations from forecast revenue um, and they identified a person who was going to do that review. In January 2009 the bank was sold to Commons Bank and then in February 2009 someone from the new owner Julie did review the bonuses and reduced them by 90% um, and the employees brought claims of, um, about this. And they argue that the earlier communications created an entitlement to the bonus at the advertised level. So the August 2008 announcement and then the, uh, the December 2008 letters. Um, the bank saw strike out of the claims, um, relying um, on the fact that they said there was no contractual entitlement and relying on the changed circumstances. Um, and the case went up to the Court of Appeal and said actually there was um, you know, a perfectly arguable case here that should be heard at full trial. Um, I'm not sure what's happened to the case um, since then, um, but the clear message is that the um, changed financial circumstances in themselves didn't give the bank um, an excuse to, to change the bonus arrangements. So um, just to sort of sum up before we break for coffee, um, what are the key themes that I think we're seeing coming out of the recession? And I think there's, there's, there's sort of four points that are important for employers. Um, if you want to avoid claims when you're making redundancies or making other um, other similar changes. The first one is consideration. It's um, really important to consider all the issues and a lot of the time that's all the tribunal is looking for to look to look at um, whether you've considered the issue of pooling properly, consider the issue of selection criteria, um, consider the impact of, of um, discrimination rules. So you should be thinking about what actually do we need to do from a business perspective and why um, how are we going to achieve that? Um, what's the impact on employees? Um, is the impact proportionate? Is there any way we can mitigate that impact? Secondly, consulting with employees, and, and as Catherine talked about, consultation being a genuine two-way process, so taking on board um, what employees um, have to say. Thirdly, taking a proportionate approach, um, you know, as we saw with the Evershed and DeBellin um, case, um, if you take a disproportionate approach to protecting particular employees, you're potentially going to get claims from, from other employees who are affected. Um, and fourthly, what I have called sort of rationality, which is a bit of a, a lawyer's word, I'm afraid, but 
it sort of means having a having a, a good reason, a sensible reason for your decision. It doesn't need to be a perfect reason, but just a reason that a tribunal can understand so they can see where you're coming from rather than something entirely arbitrary. Um, we're going to take a break for coffee now um, for sort of about 15 minutes, and when we come back we'll look at the case study, which I think is on the chair, um, which is dealing with some redundancy scenarios, and I suggest we try and sort of break into maybe five or six groups to, to talk about... Um, talk about the case study between us and then we'll feedback um, with the answers sort of 10-15 minutes after that. <laughs>